We thank you for allowing us the privilege of being able to worship freely and being able to assemble together without penalty of death or imprisonment or any other types of persecution, at least for now. We thank you for that. Lord, we ask this morning in all that we do and say and think, may you be glorified. May your people here and off-site and everywhere, may they be edified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Peter essentially sums up all of the chapters in Revelation from 6 to 19. It's an amazing summary. Here's what it says in 2 Peter. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Peter 3. My grandson, Mark, glad to see you, Mark. Mark's going to put on the screen uh, these scriptures as well. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading at verse 3. It says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. You know, I just thought right off the bat that was interesting that, uh, that, the, term, that the term last, uh, most importantly, is used. And I thought that was interesting because most importantly was a word, a phrase that Peter's colleague Paul used last week when he said, of first importance. First importance, most important. So what's most important or what's the first importance? It's the, it's the gospel that the Lord delivered to us through the word of God and through the preachers of God, which Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, it's by which you also are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And here's what he said. I think it's just so brilliant. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, while you're holding your finger there in 2 Peter 3, he said, For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Wow. There's nothing more important than that message, because it was because of Jesus' death that he substituted our sins for his and by doing so, he declared us not guilty. We're not guilty, not because we haven't sinned. We're not guilty because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore he takes the place. He, his, our sins are transferred to him on the cross, and that makes us declare unguilty, not guilty. It makes us declare holy in his sight, because of Jesus. It's a substitutionary project. The process allows us to be cleared. And the Lord's penalty. The death that he paid on the cross. Covers the penalty that we all deserve. All of us deserve what Jesus suffered. All of us deserve to have died on the cross. But Jesus died in our place. And as a result of him dying in our place. We are now declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great deal? That's an amazing deal. And so Paul reminds us of that in 1 Corinthians 15, which I talked about last week. And really briefly, Peter is alluding to that again here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, when he says, I want to remind you 
that in the last days people are going to mock the truth. Listen, let me just say this to you this morning. Don't be discouraged because people don't buy into the good news of Jesus Christ. They didn't do it then. Many will not do it today. You keep living the life. You keep living saved. You keep letting your actions speak louder than words. You keep walking the walk. And if necessary, use words. But at the end of the day, let your life be your witness. May it be your testimony. Amen? The world is looking more at what we do than what we say. What we do is really the loudest message. That's the megaphone. That's what people are absorbing. What we do, our life, our actions. Let me just jump on down here to verse 4 in 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm not going to be long. Just hang with me. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. And by the way, that's not true. Things have changed quite a bit since the world created, right? One of the big things that happened was Genesis chapter 8, the flood. The Bible says in verse 5 of 2 Peter 3, they deliberately forgot that God made the heavens by the word of his command and that he brought the earth out, of from, out from water and surrounded it with water. But then in verse 6, he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. Wow. Verse 7 says, and by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept from the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Here is verse 8. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. I'm always, my radar goes up, my antenna goes up. That is when I see things like one thing, most important thing. Don't forget. Those are like, those are like trigger words. And they, they trigger and should, should ask us to watch because our attention should be focused on what's about to be said. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. By the way, people will try to use that particular scripture to create a calendar about the Lord's return. That's not what that is saying. The word like is the key word there. Don't think that a thousand years equals a day. People have used that to try to calculate when the Lord might return or how much time there is elapsed. Don't believe that. That's like is, is that the whole purpose of that verse is to share with us that time is of no essence to the Lord. You all with me? Time is not critical to the Lord because God owns all time. He's not on a time schedule like we are. He's not scheduled to be at work tomorrow at 8 o'clock. He's not scheduled to punch any clocks. He doesn't have anything that binds him to an agenda. God can do what he wants to do. And he's not restricted to time and space continuums. Verse 9 says, the Lord isn't really slow, isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Sister Mary Favors brought that up Wednesday night in her questions, and we discussed it a little bit this morning off air when we were talking about Ezekiel chapter 8, where God says that he takes no delight in the death and, 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 the, and the, uh, the death of the lost, the unsaved, that God is not interested in seeing anyone lost. Unfortunately, there will be people that will not repent, uh, as we know that from Scripture, 
And Noah built the ark, by the way. It took him 120 years to build the ark. What's amazing is that while he was building the ark, he was also preaching the sal a, a message of salvation. Does that remind you of anyone else? I'll tell you who it reminds me of. It reminds me of Nehemiah, because while Nehemiah was building the wall, he had a shovel in one hand and a, and a Bible in the other hand, maybe. <laughs> he was building the wall, rebuilding the wall around the city of Jerusalem, and also uh, protecting them against Sanballat and his men, but also talking about the goodness of the Lord and that worship was about to be restored. God was merciful in bringing back the, the, the worship of God and a, and, and a fellowship and assembling of the saints together. So what a beautiful message. I, I love that. Um, so Noah was preaching. Maybe the reason it took 120 years is because the Lord just gave the maximum amount of time for people to get saved. Can you imagine? Can you imagine somebody preaching for 120 years? That's a long time. I mean, preaching for 120 years, and no one responded. I'll tell you, as, as sad as that is, it has encouraged me as a pastor, because I haven't been preaching nowhere near 130, 120 years. But, but, but the, 30, the 30 years that I've been here at BBC since 1992, when we started at Indian Hills downstairs, where there's a pool now, I remember that 30 years ago. And you know what? I am not discouraged that this church is not a mega church or overflowing. I am not discouraged that more people have not been saved. I am not discouraged that our membership has not grown exponentially. Because you know why? Noah preached four times as long as I've preached already. Four times. And guess what? The only people that responded to Noah's message was his family. The Bible says only eight souls were saved. If anybody had reason to be discouraged, if anybody had reason to be in despair, if anybody had reason to consider giving up and saying this is not worth it, it would have been Noah, 120 years. That's 12 decades. And the return was minimal. I mean, look how hard Lot tried to warn people that Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain were going to go up and smoke. And no one walked out of the city with him except his wife and his three, two daughters. Four people, four people got out alive and one died in the process because she turned back. What a minimum return on such a maximum effort. Lot was a righteous man. He lived a good life according to Hebrews 11 while he was in the cities of the plain and still only three Converts. I guess that's. I guess there's a message there, that there's no safety in numbers, and there's also a message there that just because the majority is going one direction, don't mean that they're right. I'll tell you, there's another message there. The message there is that the Lord is extremely patient. He is extremely long-suffering. He is extremely compassionate. Amen. So I'm going to put a I'm going to put a quick slide up because uh, I want to show you this uh, beautiful area here in Second Peter and how it's resembled in in Revelation 20 and 21 and I uh, can't wait till we sing that song next week 21 Revelation 19. Um, but let, let me just uh, 
while this, yeah, Mark has the slide up. Let me just read this to, to show you something regarding the slide. I'm still in Second Peter. Stay with me for a second in Second Peter chapter 3. I want you to look at verse 10. And here's what it says. Uh, I'm going to talk about this slide. I'm going to put it on the screen there for you at home. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise. And the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. And the earth and everything on it will be, will be found to deserve judgment. Some of you might want to know, why are these things in, in Revelation chapter 6 through 19? Why is there so much death and destruction? Why is there so much pain and suffering? Why is there so much fire and brimstone and all of those things that you see? Well, the reason is, is because the Bible says... The Bible says that the, that, every, that the earth and everything on it deserves judgment. It, it deserves it. That's, that's just what it says. I, I, didn't, I didn't make this up. Um, I, it wasn't my idea. Hopefully you can see that at home. It's, it's just that's, that's what the Bible says we deserve. So let me just show you this uh, a little bit here, what, what some of this means. Actually, well, well, we'll start with this one. I have another chart that I want you to see, too. But um, as you can see here, we talked about the Gentiles' age in the first four chapters of Revelation, first three chapters of Revelation. But then this tribulation period right here, resurrection of the saints, resurrection of the tribulation saints, this seven-year period, there's just going to be a whole lot of bad things happening according to to what we see in the word. And Mark, if you can just show me the next slide. From, from what I understand, that this is what Daniel 9, 24 says, the purpose of the tribulation period. In addition to what I just read, in addition to what I just read here in, in Peter, that is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, that everything on the earth deserves judgment. And verse 11 says, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives we should live. Amen? Yes. That is just such a, a, a sounding cry according to the New Living Translation. So here's what it says here in Daniel 9, 24. The purpose of the tribulation, a period, sorry about the typo. Sister Marie pointed that out and I still didn't correct it. There's a gap there. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed, thank you Justin, has been decreed for your people and your holy city to put down rebellion, to bring an end to sin, to atone for guilt, to bring everlasting righteousness, to confirm prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy place. Pastor Will, what are you saying there? Daniel 9.24 is saying that this is why we have the seven-year tribulation period, because the Lord wants to deal with these particular judgments, and he has seen fit to do it at such a time as this during that seven-year period. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough time. It's a tough time, but it's a time that God ordained. I gave you a chart. Everybody should have one of these. Everybody should have one of these in your notes. Uh, one of the uh, Anderson ladies passed these out for, for us this morning, uh, the one that the Anderson ladies did. And it, it says that there's a seven-year period where there will be seals and trumpets and bowls of judgment. You can see in the color, the green is the seals, Revelation 6. 
The orange is the trumpets, Revelation 8 through 9, and the bulls are Revelation 16. So good, Mark. Thank you. That's where I wanted to go, to this, this chart right here. The church age, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The Lord's return. Seven years. The seven-year period is divided into three and a half. Three and a half years of what's called protection. And then there's a battle that breaks out. And we have the second three and a half year period called tribu Great Tribulation. And this period ends with what's called the Battle of Armageddon there in Revelation 19. So you can see that these battles, and I won't get into the Battle of Gog and Magog. I won't get into the second Battle of Gog and Magog. Don't worry about that right now. What I want you to understand is what happens during this seven-year period. So can you just show me the next slide there, Marcus? I know that might be a little hard to see. The next slide just tells you what goes on according to Revelation 6. These seals that are being opened, which just really seems to be a very terrible time. According to this pale horse there in Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, the fourth seal, one-fourth of the earth's population is wiped out. During, uh, during, the, during the plague, not the plague, actually during the pandemic in 1918, 1919, and 1920, approximately 50 to 100 million people were killed by the, what's called the Spanish flu. Even that, even that wasn't a fourth of the Earth's population at that point in time. Imagine 100 million people dying of the Spanish flu in that three-year period. There's going to be more death in just this particular seal, according to Revelation chapter 6. God is really trying to get the world's attention. And so he goes through all of these judgments. Can I see the next slide too, Mark? And that's the sealed judgments. These are called, the next are called the middle of the tribulation when there's this great event called the abomination, abomination of desolation. And this is an event where the temple of God is desecrated by what might be, and we don't know the specifics, there may be idol worship or a sacrifice made unto Satan. This is where you get some more tribulation information in Revelation 13, especially as it relates to the worship of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, Satan is cast down from heaven. By the way, you say, well, wait a minute. I thought Satan was already cast out of heaven back when he took a third of the angels and started, you know, terrorizing the earth, starting with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Well, Ezekiel tells us that, but let me just say this to you. God cast Satan down. But for some unexplained reason, he still allowed Satan, at least up until this point in time, access to heaven. You say, well, Pastor Will, what are you referring to? I'm referring to Job chapter 1, when the Bible says, and the sons of men were coming before the Lord, Satan also came. Satan had access. Somehow Satan has access to the Lord's throne, maybe for conversational reasons. I don't know. He certainly doesn't have his same status, but Satan has access according to Job and according to this. And remember, Job's, Job was able to talk with the Lord and barter with the Lord, basically, regarding Job. Satan has also been able to have access to talking to God relative to the place of 
Noah's body being buried. I mean, Moses' body being buried. So for whatever reason, Satan has this access to heaven, and the Lord is going to withdraw that access according to Revelation 12, 7 through 9. And then there's another slide, Mark. And this is these additional, target, these additional judgments um, that are given in Revelation 16. More and more judgments from God. These earthquakes, these, the fresh water to blood, seems like the plagues of, back in the uh, book of Exodus, those ten plagues. Terrible sores, the sea turning to blood, uh, Euphrates River dries up. All of these things happen during this seven-year period where people will still be getting saved. Isn't that a great thing? There will be some people still getting saved. There will be people that will not still turn to the Lord for whatever reason. Let's see the next slide. I think we just have one or two more. The Battle of Armageddon is something that's going to take place towards the end of the tribulation period. This will be a battle that we will be involved in. That means we saints that have been raptured, saints that are alive during the tribulation period, will be a part of this great battle as we battle the enemies of the Lord, including both Satan and his allies, and also uh, those that are on the earth that have not turned to the Lord Jesus. And there might be one more, Mark. That's it. That's the last one. Okay, very good. Thank you. Yes, there's one by itself. And that's, yeah, this one right here is the one that you all have a copy of. It kind of breaks down Revelation 6 through 19. And it gives you sort of a chapter-by-chapter chapter analysis of the various judgments. Okay, so, so much for that. I wanted you to see that because I wanted you to understand why the Lord is planning to do this in the future and what our role is in the present. And I think Peter outlines it best as I close in 2 Peter 3.11. Everybody turn to that real quick. 2 Peter 3.11 really gives us a great reason for all of this information I've shared with you. It says in 2 Peter 3.11, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this. Before I read the latter part, let me just say this to you. I, I looked at a documentary on Netflix last night about Noah's flood. It's a four-part documentary that Sister Marie and I started. Um, all of my teams were losing in the NBA playoffs, so I decided to go documentary. I mean, what else could I do, you know? So uh, <laughs> the Cavs weren't playing, you know. Um, so we looked at this documentary, and it was interesting because it was talking about Noah's flood, and most importantly, it was talking about the fact that people did not respond to Noah's preaching and people did not respond to the warnings. And I, I thought, wow, this is just so much like Revelation because Peter is saying, and John, who was inspired to write Revelation, is saying that God is providing these judgments and this time and this compassion for people to turn to him and be saved. The most important message for all of this is that let, let's come to the Lord Jesus. Let's become believers. Let's become redeemed. Let's repent and return to the Lord. And I think that this, this latter part of verse 11 is just so appropriate. Good place for me to end. He says, 
since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives should you live? What holy and godly lives you should live? It's, it's written in a statement form in the New Living Translation, but in the King James Version, it says, how then, it, to me, in the King James Version, ask it in a question, which I like, how then should we live? How should we live? Amen? Since we know this is going to happen, and it doesn't matter. I, I, I like this idea that, you know, if you have a different viewpoint, which is, is, which is certainly fine, if you have a different viewpoint on how these things will play out, it won't change how our actions should be right now. In other words, right now our actions should, should be, Lord, I want to be ready when you come. Whether, whether you come uh, before the rapture, during the, rap, uh, during the tribulation, before the tribulation, after the tribulation, however you come, I want to be ready. Amen? I want to live ready. And that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, since you know these things are going to happen, wherever and whatever sequence of events, how, whatever the order is, they occur in the future. Whatever the order is, how should we live now? It's a rhetorical question. It could be made in a statement like it is in the New Living Translation. We should live holy and godly lives now, knowing what the Lord is going to do in the future, knowing that we're going to have to give an account. Amen? Amen. I would like to use as a Monday morning moment, always remember that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Jesus alone. I'll repeat it. The Monday morning moment, always remember that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Is that pretty clear? I think it's pretty clear. If you want to accept the Lord Jesus Christ, you can just come up right now. You can just, if you don't even have to come up, if you want to just stand up, we'll come right to your seat because salvation is so critical. This question that Peter asked just so moved me then I just wanted to make it the title of my message. You know, knowing, knowing what's going to happen, how then should we live? That's the title. That's basically the title of the message this morning. The title of the message this morning is, how should we now live? Essentially saying, since we know what's going to happen, since we know what's in store for this world, let's make sure that we're not on the receiving end of God's wrath. Amen? That we're not on the receiving end of God's judgments. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that these scriptures will minister to us. That we'll be responsible. That we'll be respectful of your word. And, Lord, that we will remember. That we will remember your word. Not just remember it for the sake of chalking up a few points. But remembering it for the sake of being accountable applying it, doing it, living it. Lord, we know that you can give us strength because you are our, 
our keeper. We have, been re we have received the Holy Spirit, the Paracletus, who will lead and guide us into all truth so we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. You're in us, Lord. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We ask you, Lord, to strengthen us, to, to want to live for you, to want to be accountable, to want to be holy, to want to live righteous lives. And we just trust you, Lord, and we thank you. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.